0: let's uh sorry
1: no chicken soup tonight
0: i know right no chicken soup virtual chicken soup along with uh virtual hugs for everybody that's how that's how we're gonna roll so welcome to think different tanya this is our exploration of the classic bible of Chabad hasidic philosophy known as the tanya and we are this is a very special class because as mentioned this is the last one well This is not the last class, but this is... We're going to conclude the the book of the first part of Tanya. The first part of Tanya has 53 chapters. We are going to explore the last half of chapter number 53. So this is an epic moment for some of you. You've been joining me for about a year or a little over a year. Some of you have joined me for many years um, in these classes. It's... uh, it's a bit different for everybody, but what's the same is that we've hopefully studied and, and grown and enjoyed this experience together, and I'm looking forward to an epic conclusion. And I will tell you, as always, the Alta Rebbe in Tanya does not disappoint, right? Even in these last... Hey, Adina Malka, good to see you. Hi. This is it. This is the grand finale. This is it? This is it. But don't worry. I said before, we're still going to learn more. Don't worry. It's not like we're closing up shop. But this is a very special, very special, um, very special night. From those Thursday night Tanya sessions around my table with the chicken soup with the kids on the lap. Oh wait, it's almost like that, Riva. Um a monkey. And oh, and a monkey? Nice. Hey monkey. Cute, cute monkey. And oh, and Shia. It's mine. It's your monkey. No one's taking it from you. You're safe. So from from those home. Hey Ellie Solish, we got the we got like we got the whole cast coming back. You know, the the original cast and crew. Um, to to our foray on online learning through Zoom, it's been quite the experience. But before we wrap it up, we're gonna study the last little bit of Tanya. And as I was just saying a moment ago, the of it definitely does not disappoint. It is, it ends on an incredible note. You know, after all the philosophy is said and done, what Chabad Hasidic teachings remind us is that the most important thing is What we do that the most important thing in life is action Philosophy and theory and even spirituality is wonderful But it's not what as we call the tachlis. It's not the tachlis Tachlis means it's not the ultimate. What is the ultimate? The ultimate is what we do it's action. It's the actions that we take to make the world a better place. So I want to give you a bit of a context. This is something that I've shared before, maybe even many times. And the, the context is the angels that are visiting Abraham. Abraham, this is shortly after his circumcision. And David is like, I just heard this. And a, the angels are visiting Abraham. And shortly after his circumcision, and uh, one is bringing him healing, and one is bringing good news about Sarah's uh, birth, uh, pregnancy, and birth, and one is um, bringing heal. One is bringing salvation to Lot, and one is going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's many different um, different angels with different tasks, and. They come to Abraham, and they come to the tent, and he says, come on in, and he welcomes them in, and he starts feeding them, and the whole, the whole deal, the whole situation. And at some point in the conversation, they say, where's your wife, Sarah? And he says, oh, she's inside the tent. There's a beautiful commentary, there's a beautiful mystical commentary that says, what was the question, what was the answer? The angels in heaven, they saw light emanating, a spiritual light emanating from Abraham's tent. So they said, "Ah." Oh, Today we get the opportunity to go visit Abraham. We have some business to take care of, but we can see this giant of a man. And they go to Abraham's tent, and the next thing you know, Abraham is walking them in, and he's cooking a meal for them, and he's preparing meat. And he's he's a chef. He's a he's that's it. Abraham, the spiritual giant, is 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 a good host. That's it. Can't be. Must be Sarah. Must be we're talking about Sarah. So they say where's Sarah? He says, you don't get it. She's, all, she's in the tent. In other words, her, the greatness that you're looking for is concealed. You're never going to find what you're looking for. See, your understanding as an angel of what spirituality is, is removed and divorced from practical action. On earth, what is holy, what is spiritual? It's when someone's hungry, you feed them. It's when someone's tired, you give them a place to sleep. It's when someone needs a shoulder to cry on, you give them that shoulder. That's what holiness is in our, in our plane of existence. Maybe for the angels, there's a different definition. But right here, right now, what it means to be holy is what we do. And so it's so perfect. After 53, I mean, not after, but in the 53rd chapter of Tanya, after all the philosophy is said and done, what's the point? What's the takeaway? That what we do matters. And this is the theme of tonight's class. What we do more than anything else is what brings light into the world. It's not how we think, and it's not how we feel, and it's not... You know, our soul that we have inside of us, the bottom line is, are we being a mensch or we're we not being a mensch? We're doing the right thing or not doing the right thing. No games, no excuses. It's, it's tachlis. It's, it's, it's action. That is what is the ultimate. And I say this, that this is so perfect for Tanya because it really comes full circle. For those that were with me from the beginning or close to the beginning, you know that the first chapters of Tanya are talking about a bainani. What is the Benini? What is this individual known as the Benini? Benini literally means the middle person, the intermediate type of person. Not the Tzaddik, the perfectly righteous. Not the Rasha, the wicked person. The Benini right in the middle. What's the Right. Does that mean somebody that has half, you know, if you weigh, if you, kind of put all their, their deeds on a scale, half good things, half bad things? No, that's not what a bainani is. A bainani is someone who's in the middle. A bainani is a psychological Russia, but a behavioral tzaddik. A bainani is somebody who on the inside has all sorts of negative temptations and tendencies and desires, but on the outside does what's right. When it counts, comes through. Even if part of them didn't want to come through, But when push came to shove, they showed up and they did the right thing. That's what a bainani is. I think John Wayne once said, and I'm paraphrasing, a hero is not someone who bravely steps up and saves the day. A hero is somebody who's afraid, whose legs, I'm totally paraphrasing here, whose knees are shaking in their boots, and yet who still gets the job done. You see, a tzaddik is wonderful, but a tzaddik is perfection. It's easy for the tzaddik to get it done. A benini, the hero of Tanya. Tanya is also called Sefer Shal The book for the Bainani. The Bainani is somebody who is very conflicted, very turbulent inside, and yet does the right thing. Because you know what? Action is what matters most. Our imperfections inside, so what? It's what we do that really matters. Which reminds me of one of the most fabulous stories that I that I you know that always makes me think and smile and and really appreciate the wisdom of the rabbi with this story. The rabbi was once speaking to a college student, Jewish kid, and uh, someone who well, was connected with Judaism, but you know not always so. He was in college, so the rabbi says to him, "Here, I want you. I want to give you a mission. I want you to take on this resolution that you're going to go when you go back on campus." You're going to wrap tefillin with your fellow students. <laughs> so that this young man turns to the Rebbe and says, You know, I, I, uh, I have to confess, I don't put on tefillin every day myself. So it would be quite hypocritical for me to be the one to encourage everyone else to put on tefillin. I'm not holding there. I'm not on that level. So the Rebbe smiled and said, what, just because you don't put on tefillin every day, doesn't mean, that means that they should lose out on the mitzvah. So what? In other words, what the Rebbe is saying is, don't let your, your, your struggles get in the way of your mission of what you need to do. And it's so perfectly aligned with, with the opening and the ending of Tanya, which is, you know what? It doesn't matter how you feel. Get the job done. Make a difference. Because at the end of the day, the light is brought into the world through action. Not through thought, not through intention, not through good, you know, good feelings. That's, that's good. That enhances what we do. But at the end of the day, what we do is what matters most here in the world of action. So how do we get there? How do we get there today in Chapter 53? I want to reset Chapter 53 because it's been a few weeks since we started Chapter 53. We had one session prior on, on, on this chapter. So I want to quickly reset what we were talking about and then we're going to jump back in. The last few chapters, even before 53, we've been talking about the notion of Shechina, the divine presence, and how, you know, although God is everywhere, there are certain spaces where God is seen to be in in an obvious and profound way. So it's one thing that something is there. It's another thing to see that it's there. And so God is, is everywhere, even in this world, but there was a certain place in the world where you could see God. Where God was like, oh, there, there's God for sure. I don't know about other places, but there's God. So w- what was that place on earth? That was the Holy Temple, the Beit HaMikdash. And of course, as we mentioned, the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple, we have to acknowledge and, and, and note that we all need to pray for Israel and pray for peace and safety, and security, and only blessings, and the Rebbe said many times that we pray not only for Jewish life and safety, but we pray for the life and the safety of everybody, and um, the sooner conflict ends, the better is for everybody, and sometimes conflict, we need to, sometimes when it comes to these things, we need to, you know, to, to, to make sure that these things end the end and and not be protracted. So please, God, may the verse, may the Torah's promise indeed be realized in an obvious way where God says in Deuteronomy that God's eyes are on the land land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And uh, may God indeed protect all of our brothers and sisters and Jews everywhere um, in these uh, challenging times. But I mention that because... I, I. I mentioned that in the context of the of the Holy Temple. The Holy Temple was a space in which godliness was, was obviously present. The mission says in Pirkei Avot, we just read it actually this past Shabbat, it says there were 10 miracles that happened every day in the temple. There were 10, you walked into the temple, it was a place of miracles. It was clear that this is an extraordinary place. They lived with that. So... So the Shekhinah, Divine Presence, God is everywhere. But where is God seen to be? Like where is it clear that God is, is the temple. And that was true in the era of the first temple. Last time we said in the second temple era, it was seen a little bit less. And what about today? There's no temple. Where do you see God? That's the context of today's conversation. So I'm going to share my screen with you in a moment. Um, As soon as I have it open on my end. And that is how we are going to jump into this. Give me a moment. Let me open this up. Okay, here we go. All right, chapter 53. I'm scrolling down because we already started it. As I mentioned, we're about halfway through. And... Let's do this. Oh, one thing, one thing that's very important, just for the language of this chapter. Uh, the idea that God is clearly seen in the first temple, um, the way he constructs that um, using Kabbalistic terminology is that the divine light that comes down into the world, into the temple in that era, kind of bypasses the typical screens that otherwise screen and obscure the fact that it is divine energy. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah, I know I said it very quickly um, but just, just again just to repeat myself just in case you missed what I what I said everything comes from God right there's everything is God and it comes from God um, but the reason why this world doesn't look like God or doesn't look like there's God here unless you you look a little bit deeper is because the light you know it's in the light, is obscured and concealed behind layers and layers and curtains and curtains and contractions, concealments, obfuscations, right? It's, it's hidden, 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 until it looks like there's no God. Okay, um, but, certain, but in certain contexts, the light bypasses the curtain. It's kind of like um, you're wearing, oh, I have a good example. Let me stop sharing so I can like, kind of get into this example with you guys. Remember back in the day, a, a, a film camera, remember that? A cam, not a digital camera, right? Like a one with actual film, right? So you got the little canister, yes, and you like you opened it up, you started it off. Remember that? You had to pull it out a little bit to kind of feed it, and then you locked it in. And at least in my day, it was already. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it was like before that, but at least in the 80s when I was around, right? It Goes like like load up a little bit and get get ready to go and frame one. Boom, we're ready. Yeah, so, and, and you remember if you were to open the back of the camera while the film was was in, the big no-no that that would have done? It's like, oh my gosh, you let in the light, and now you've exposed the negative or the film, and now you're going to develop your pictures, and there's going to be these white splotches everywhere, and you ruined everything. So that's an example of the light, you know, to, the the pure light comes in and and, and you're ruined like that closed environment was it closed environment that only let in a little bit when you when you when you press the shutter it opens up the thing for a split second or like a fraction of a second to let in a little bit of light to expose the film exactly the way it needs to be exposed based on technology etc you let in too much light ah you ruined it so i'm using this example not as like god's light ruins things but It kind of does, but hold on. Let me explain what I mean. God is trying to create a closed environment here that looks ungodly, and it's working pretty well. But there's a little bit of light that comes in, but in the temple, right, that's where the camera is left open, right? There's, like, light pouring in over there, and if you want to know, like, if you want to hack into the system, be like, oh, wait, this is clearly not, like, everywhere else, which is this closed closed um, uh, space, that would be the temple. So again, why is it like that? Because the light is bypassing the concealments. The light is coming straight in, not through the little shutter, not through the little, you know, little aperture, not through the little opening. It's coming in all the way. You with me on that? Yeah, okay, I'm just saying that so that we understand the the terminology as I, once again, share my screen. Where is my screen to share? Hold on. Stick with me. Here we go, let's see if this works. And, of course, it does not. But now it does. Okay, Uh, let's start with... I'm gonna paraphrase a little bit. I know I'm going back. I'm not going back to the beginning, don't worry. Okay, here we go. So, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm literally paraphrasing here just so we're, we're, we get a running start. So I'm not reading full sentences. I'm going to go middle of paragraphs. Don't worry. It's all part of the plan. I'm DJing this right now. So the infinite light of the Ein is in the temple. It's the Shechina, the divine presence. It's in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And specifically, it's, 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 it's honed in on the Ten Commandments that are in the tablets, in the Ark, right? which is, I guess, very timely now, the Thursday before Shavuot, the anniversary of the giving of the Ten Commandments and the tablets, etc. So um, this is what we're talking about, the fact that the light poured in in the First Temple and the Ten Commandments and the tablets, etc. And it was etched and Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were etched in the tablets as the work of the living God. In other words, that's where you saw God and that emanated to the temple and from there, there was some sort of recognition of God uh, emanating in the world but the, the epicenter was in the temple. Now, let's continue. This is where we're going to pick it up. As for the, Well, actually, maybe I still paraphrase a little bit. As for the second temple, right, where there was no ark and there was no tablet, there were no tablets, so um, the Shekinah did not abide there. God's presence did not abide there. That doesn't mean that, that God wasn't there. It just means it wasn't as revealed as the first temple. Right? It just was not on the same level. It wasn't the same category as it was in the first temple. Uh, right? In other words, the light didn't bypass all the screens in the second temple like it did in the first. But in the second temple, it did go through some, some checkpoints. Right. In the second temple, the shekhinah abided according to the order of gradual descent. It did go through some sort of hishtal shulot, some sort of um, uh, lessening of the light. Machatavatsilut, and these are all Kabbalistic terms, of course. Of, Bria, of Yitzira, etc., and then the, the holy of holies of Asiya. And, and, and thus the light did become a little bit less and a little bit more obscured, a little bit more obfuscated. Okay. But but there was still the holy presence, it was still the Shekhinah was still there, and it was still more revealed than anywhere else. And he says, therefore, even in the second temple no man was permitted to enter there except the high priest on Yom Kippur. And and this is where I want to pick it up inside. So what we've established thus far is, look, the light normally comes down through divine light, usually is filtered in a very heavy way, very strong filter to the point that it's unrecognizable on the other side of the filters. Um, In the temple, it was unfiltered. In the first temple, it was completely unfiltered. Second temple filtered a little bit, but still you could tell there was something deeper. Um, but now there's no temple. It's been like this for the last, you know, 1900 plus, almost 2,000 years, since the year 69 of the Common Era. So are we saying that there's no space in which God's light is unfiltered? The answer is there's still a space. There's still a space where the light comes in. Here we go. This is it. And ever since the destruction of the temple, HaKadosh Baruch the Holy One blessed be He, has but the four cubits of halacha alone. Where is God found? Where is God revealed? In the four cubits, the six feet. Right? It means the space of halacha of Jewish law. That means Torah study and mitzvot. And even if one Jew sits and engages in Torah study, he says, the Shekinah is with him. You know what that means? That means that you are in a space where God is revealed. Like you would go to the temple of old and see God and have that light cracking open the door of your your camera to let the light come in unfiltered, unchecked. That's what happens nowadays each and every time that we engage in Torah study and halacha and mitzvah mitzvah performance, etc. As it is stated in the first chapter of Brachot, tractate Brachot, the phrase the Shechina is with him means that although he is a being of the material world, in other words, the person is part of the filter or, or, or a, a, on the other side of a filter. Nonetheless, the Shekhinah is with him. That's what's going on. So, what is the portal to God? This is what he's saying. How do you get connected with God? Back in the day, you would show up to the temple and like, wow, that's God. First temple, second temple, a little bit less. But today, what do we do? We crack open the Torah, we study it, we do a mitzvah, halacha, etc. That's how we connect to the pure light. And the level of the Shekhinah that is with him is in order of the gradual descent and investment of Malchot of Azilat and and Yitzir and asiya. So it does come down a little bit step by step, but it's still relative to everything else of creation. It is relatively unfiltered. It's not purely unfiltered like the first temple but relatively unfiltered relative to everything else in existence. For the 613 commandments of the Torah are by and large precepts which involve action, including even those mitzvot that are fulfilled by word and thought. In other words, even the mitzvot that are like prayer and thought like meditation. Oh, sorry, he, gives a, he explains such as Torah study, the blessing after meals, the recital of Shema and prayer, even those mitzvot that, are, that seemingly don't involve action. Well, I'm studying Torah. What am I doing? I'm just studying Torah. I'm saying, benching, I'm blessing after a meal. What am I doing? I'm not like doing anything. I'm just saying something. I'm reciting Shema and praying. What am I doing? Still, he says, that's a form of action. Why? For it has been ruled in the Talmud that meditation has not the validity of speech, in other words, if you just meditate on Torah study, if you meditate on the blessing after meal, if you meditate on the Shema, if you meditate on, on tefillah and prayer, that's not considered to be fulfilling the mitzvah. You have to verbalize, you have to say it. You have to say the words of Torah, say the words of tefillah, of prayer, you have to actually speak it. And one does not fulfill one's obligation by meditation in the manner of hear and kavanah alone, even when his manner of meditation is close to speech as in the case when one thinks about the way in which he will utter certain words, which is called, called hear her, and until he gives it utterance with his lips. In other words, even, it's not only if you think of a concept, but even if you think of the concept like you would as a narrative with words. Does that make sense, what I'm saying, or what he's saying? You know, sometimes you can think about something as a general concept, and sometimes you can, you can, you can think about it so methodically that you think of the words, one word and the next word. You think to yourself, oh, wait, you don't know what I'm thinking. Shema, Yisrael, Hashem, Melokeinu, Hashem Echad. And you, go, you think slowly. You didn't do it. You didn't do the mitzvah. You didn't say Shema. Shema is supposed to be said. Torah study is supposed to be said. The blessing after meal is supposed to be said. So you had wonderful thoughts and you even went, you, in your mind, you even pictured the words. But here, Lav Kadibr dumi. thought. Even that type of very methodical thought is still not speech. And you don't fulfill the mitzvah until you give it the utterance with your lips. Moreover, I don't think it's moreover. It's and, not moreover. And it has been ruled in Jewish law that the motion of the lips is considered an action. So therefore, all mitzvot form action. Let me explain what he's saying. What the ad is saying in Tanya is, here you have something absolutely incredible. Typically, God's light is hidden. In the temple, it's revealed. Nowadays, when you do a mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah, one second. A mitzvah is like a physical action. And every mitzvah is a physical action. You see the tension that he's building over here? And the whole point is that the greatest light is found in doing a mitzvah, a physical action. And he says, even the mitzvot that don't look like they're physical actions are still physical actions. What do you mean? Torah studies a physical action? Yeah, you have to say it. And when you move your lips, that's action. And prayer, shema or other prayer, it's only prayer if you say it, and when you move your lips, that's what we call action. So what we have here is this beautiful idea that... Um, That action is what defines a mitzvah. A mitzvah is defined by action, and that's precisely where God is hanging out. Mark.
1: Yeah, I've got a question. You know, early on, the Alter Rebbe uh, emphasized, made the point that we had to control three aspects of ourselves. Thought, speech, and action. Yes. He He didn't just say action. He said thought, speech. But here he's saying, don't worry about thought and speech.
0: It's the action that counts. Good. Good, good, good. So first of all, you're right. You're right that that's what he said then. You're right that this is what he's saying now. You're right. In other words, a bainani is someone who is in control of their actions and their words and their thoughts. Even when a negative thought comes to mind and it's really hard to battle, the bainani fights the good fight. And Gets rid of it. Thinks about something else. Speech doesn't utter a negative word. Wants to, but doesn't. And action as well. So that definition doesn't change. That is a benini. What he's saying now is, after all is said and done, where is the ultimate, where should the ultimate focus be? Should it be on meditation? Should it be on speech? He says, ultimately, what makes the greatest difference in this world, what unleashes the greatest light Is what we do, and that for sure is in the control of the bainani. I think that's where he's going with this. Although thought, speech, and action can and must be in the bainani's control, right? That's our calling as a bainani—not to be perfect inside, but in these three garments to be, to be good. For sure, though, we have the ability to choose to do or not do, right? To do good and not to do the opposite of good. And that, in the realm of action, that's where the magic lies. So, yes, he's he's de-emphasizing thought and speech, not to contradict what he said before, but just to really lift up what I think, in my opinion, is the most doable thing you can tell a person. And that is, I know you don't want to do it, but do it because it's amazing. Right? Or I know you want to do it, just don't. Just don't. Don't push the button. Right? It's just... Don't do it. And that's, yes, you could also not think about doing it and not talk about it. Yes, 100%. And, and, and we should be in control of that as well as, a, as, as per our uh, uh, striving Bainani status. But action is the most accessible, the most, in, hopefully the most in control. And that makes the, the greatest difference. So it's not just the lowest hanging fruit. So we're going to focus on that. He's saying it's the highest, well, not the highest hanging fruit. I don't know, but it's the lo- It's the loftiest space, or it's the it's the holiest space to access. Is this realm of action and the study of Torah that pertains to action, i.e., the study of halach of Jewish law. So that's yeah.
1: Rabbi Nike said, "Just do it."
0: Just do it, or as the Alter Rebbe says, "Just Jew it." Anyway, yes. <laughs> With a chauffeur, little we have to have a new version with a chauffeur swoosh. Okay, this class, not sponsored by Nike, but if anyone's interested, and if anyone at Nike is interested, just hit me up. (laughs) I don't mind wearing, putting a Nike thing. No, I'm kidding. All right, let's jump in back to our text. All right, here we go, go. Um... Okay, so again, his point is that every mitzvah is being done. Every mitzvah involves action. Even the ones that we think are kind of meditative or, you know, whatever, it's still all about action because you have to move your lips. Next. And here we go. Listen to this. He's explaining the value and the beauty of a mitzvah. Ooh, remind me. Okay, I'm not going to say it now, but remind me to tell you the last thing the Yath Rebbe said before he passed away. Okay, remind me. And he says, the 613 mitzvot, commandments of the Torah, together with the seven rabbinical commandments, combine to total the numerical equivalent of keter, crown, which is the supernal will. Let me explain what that is. So you have 613 biblical commandments, seven rabbinic commandments, like Hanukkah and, and Shabbat candles, whatever, rabbinic commandments. So 613 plus 7 is, help me out here, 613 plus seven? Six, 620. Good. 620 is keter, right here in the Hebrew. Keter, chaf is 20, tough is 400, reish is 200. So 200, 400 plus 20 is 620. So keter, which means crown, right? And it's not just crown, but a keter refers to the transcendent will of, of God on a, on a mystical level. So so the mitzvot are ketter, which means God's supernal will, God's higher will. Which, so, on a very simple level, the mitzvah is God's will. It's what God wants. And it's reflected in the numerology, 613 plus 7, 620, ketter. Keter is will, right? So it all, it all comes together. But, but here's what you need to know. The mitzvot are supernal will. Supernal will that is clothed in wisdom. Because you can understand what a mitzvah is. I mean, some of them are a little bit, you know, a little bit beyond knowledge, beyond understanding, but we can study the mitzvah. We can come to some sort of understanding of most mitzvot. So these, these 620 points of God's will are clothed in His wisdom. And they are united with the, with the light of the Ein sof in a perfect union. And now we get to the point. The mitzvot... Our divine will, wrapped in divine intellect, united with the light of the Ein Sof, and then you and I get to do them. And when we do a mitzvah, what are we touching? We're touching on the light of the Ein Sof, the infinite light. It's the, the mitzvot are connected with the Ein Sof, look at this, in a perfect union. That is a very strong term, powerful term. God, let's continue. God founded the earth... With wisdom. He says, not only when you study the written law, but even when you study the oral law, like the Mishnah, the Talmud, and other works of the oral law, Kabbalah, etc., Hasidic philosophy, Tanya, right? This is also where God is found. Because the verse says, God founded the earth with wisdom. And that refers to the oral law, as well, that is derived from supernal wisdom, as is written in the Zohar the father, Chachma, begat the daughter, which is Malchut, the oral law. Basically, father bege- begets daughter, father, written law, begets daughter, the oral law, the explanations, and the, the elaborations, but it's all part of supernal wisdom. And if it's part of supernal wisdom, it's also connected with the light of the ein Sof. And thus, When you and I study Torah, we're doing this right now. This is happening right now. You and I are like we're going into the temple of old, connecting with and standing and and beholding the infinite light of God. It's happening right now. Every time we study Torah, every time we do a mitzvah, it it reveals the greatest light. And now we get back to what we quoted before a few chapters ago from the Yenuka. The Yenuka was the child prodigy who kind of went in this trance and started saying all these super mystical and lofty concepts. And if you recall, I'm going to remind you what he said, the yunuka. He was quoted actually twice before in Tanya for saying the same thing. Basically, this kid was, was kind of, you know, I don't know what you would say, but espousing these myst- mystical concepts. And he said that you and I are like a lamp. Remember this analogy, the lamp? A lamp is comprised of three components the oil, the wick, and the flame. You remember this? An oil lamp, right? Think of a an oil lamp, right? Which we typically don't have in our homes nowadays because of electricity. This worked much better back in the day. Everyone understood what was going on. So you have an oil lamp. So you have obviously a container, but forget the container for now. You have in the container, there's oil. Let's say olive oil. Here's olive oil, Hanukkah, exactly. Right? So there's, but but many people use candles, whatever. So you have the oil, and then in the oil there's a wick, and then, well, then it's not light, it's it's not warm, it's not light, until you actually attach a flame to your wick, which is going to consume the oil as fuel, and it's going to burn until the oil runs out. That's the way it works. It's kind of magic. That's the way it works. So there are three components, and all three are necessary. And we said in the analog, in other words, on the spiritual level for you and I, What this refers to is the dynamic by which we bring light into the world, right? So the body is the wick, oil is Torah and mitzvot, and the flame is the soul. And so how does the soul, how does our soul, my soul, your soul, how does our soul bring light into the world? It's by being attached to the wick and consuming oil. Does that make sense? Our soul brings light into the world, into this world, by being attached to a body. And by our body doing, consuming, burning through. Burning through, I mean like expending energy on doing mitzvot. That's the way bring light into the world. And the author and, and Rebbe asked a few chapters ago, but why do we need to do a mitzvah to bring light? In? Isn't the fact that our soul is here good enough? And on one level it is. And that I, I was even the topic of last night's class. It's not what we do, but it's who we are. And that's true up to a certain extent. Because at the end of the day, we also have divine obligations and expectations. And God says, I want you to do a mitzvah. If you can, obviously, right? But I want you to do a mitzvah. And when we do a mitzvah, we add the other element, which is the fuel. And as we've been discussing in the last chapter or two, and certainly tonight, the fuel, the mitzvah, is where the magic really happens. Because the soul is a byproduct of the filter. Whereas the mitzvah is a bypass of the filter. I'm going to say that again. The soul, as spiritual as it is, it is a byproduct of this cosmic filter that filters out the light to a certain extent. Whereas Torah and mitzvot, that is like the temple, that portal straight to the source where the light, the infinite light, shines through. Thus, for the soul to bring light into this world, it actually needs the medium of a mitzvah, Torah and mitzvot, to really bring the light. So you need all three components. You need the body with a soul, or a soul with a body, studying Torah or doing a mitzvah. That's how the magic happens, and that's exactly what he says right here. So let's do it inside. I gave you the the outline, but let's do it. Let's do it together in the actual text. And this is what the Yanukah, that's the trial prodigy in Zohar, quoted in chapter 35, meant when he said that the supernal light that is kindled on his head, namely the Shekhinah, requires oil. Right? So even though the soul is kindled on his head, in other words, the, the, it's, it's, it's holy and divine, it still requires oil. That is. To be clothed in wisdom, which is called the oil of the holy anointing. In other words, Torah. And holy signifies or wisdom as explained in the Zohar. Kodesh, Shemen, Mishrat, Kodesh, holy and oil are connected. Just like holiness is higher than, oil floats. There are many different connections between oil and holiness. Um, that's why the, the Greeks wanted to defile the oil. They wanted to defile the wisdom and the holiness, etc. So there's a connection between oil and holiness and wisdom it's all connected all three points are connected chachma shemen kodesh all three are synonymous holiness wisdom and oil so the point is what is the oil here right you can't just have a fire if you just light a wick on fire it's going to burn out you need oil you must it must you must have oil for this lamp to be sustained so it's not enough to have a soul that's connected with god you also have to have the soul and a body doing a mitzvah because the oil is the wisdom, the oil is the holiness, as explained in the Zohar. And this also refers to, these are also refers a reference to good deeds, namely the 613 commandments, which derive from his wisdom. So when we talk about oil, oil is wisdom. And it's not only wisdom, which is Torah, but it's also good deeds. It's also the mitzvot. Bottom line is Torah study and good deeds, mitzvot, are the oil or the fuel that keeps the light of the soul burning. And thereby, he says, when you have the oil, which is, again, is Torah and mitzvot, the light of the shechina can cling to the wick. I.e., the vivifying soul can cleave to the body, which is metaphorically called a wick. Right, again, when you have oil, think about the example, think about the lamp. Don't get spiritual uh, yet. Think about a lamp. It's only when you have oil that your flame is going to stay with the wick. Otherwise, it's going to burn up the wick Right, you light, a, you light a piece of cotton on fire, it's going to burn out. It's going to burn and go out, and then it's done. So how do you keep it burning? How do you keep it... How do you keep it sustained flame? You have to add oil. So the only way the light of the Shrina can cling to the wick, how does the soul connect with the body in a sustained way to bring light? The body, which is metaphorically called wick, that's only thereby when you have the oil, which is wisdom and good deeds. I hope that makes sense. Yes? Thumbs, does it make, making sense? Okay. Um, for just as in the case of a material candle... It's not candle. This means lamp. Candle has a connotation of like a wax candle. For just... I'm going to modify the translation. For just as in the case of a material lamp, the light shines by virtue of the, annihil- of the annihilation and burning of the wick turning to fire, so does the light so does the light of the Shekhinah rest on the divine soul, which is the candle, as a result of the, which is the lamp, as a result of the annihilation of the animal soul and its transformation from darkness of Klippa to light and from bitterness of Klippa Noga to sweetness of holiness in the case of the righteous. For tzaddikah. For saddikim are those who transform the essence of the animal soul. It's like an emotion from evil into goodness and holiness. All right, hold on. I don't want to spin out of control here because it's a very long sentence. If you notice, the sentence is going all the way through here. So let's, let's break this down. He's giving the, exam, the physical example and then the spiritual analog. The physical candle or lamp, the light is sustained by burning the wick through the, th- with the oil right? So too, the soul and the Shekhinah on the soul is, is, is working, is bringing light into the world when it makes a transformation with the wick, when it transforms the wick by kind of burning up the wick, so to speak, not burning it up completely, but kind of burning the wick or burning through the wick um, and that's the, what he's calling the annihilation, not literal annihilation, but figurative annihilation of the animal soul and its transformation from darkness to light. So, and, and maybe not full transformation for the Benini. Um, Sorry, full transformation for the Tzaddik. Or, at least through the destruction of its garments, which are thought, speech, and action, as Mark said... And their transformation from the darkness of the clipot to the divine light of the ain sof, which is clothed in uniting the thought, speech, and action of the 630 commandments of the Torah in the case of Bainanim. So, essentially, depending on whether we're talking about a, the righteous, the tzaddikim, or the Bainanim, it's going to be a different type of burning of the animal soul and the body. So, tzaddik is going to experience a complete transformation from inside out. The Bainani is going to experience a transformation of action. And speech and thought and not full transformation. But at least there's some action. In other words, the fire, we're using a lamp analogy, the fire destroys part of the wick. Right? It's not like the fire is burning the fuel directly. The fire is attached to the wick, which then sucks up the fuel and then does its thing. But there is some kill there is some sort of annihilation of the wick. It burns the wick also. Right? You start off with a white wick, and it becomes black, it becomes, it's, it's burnt, it's singed. Something happened to the wick. So the point is that the soul doing a mitzvah is supposed to have an impact on the body, which is the wick. So for the tzaddik, it's a big effect. For the benini, it's also an effect, not as big, not as radical, but also a powerful effect. But the bottom line is, the soul is meant to have an effect on the body. On the wick, the flame affects the wick. If you, if you have a lamp and you light and you, you, know, you strike a match and you put it to the wick, and nothing happens to the wick, guaranteed you don't have a fire. Fire means the fl- fire means a flame a, a lit lamp means that the wick has been affected. The wick also is sucking up the oil. The mitzvah is working through the body, yes. But the body itself also needs to be transformed in the process. And so for abandoning, what that means is, by do, and it's by sucking, it's by, it's by utilizing the oil that the wick keeps on being burned. Are you with me on this? The wick keeps on being affected the more it sucks up the oil. So the more mitzvah we do, every time we do a mitzvah, the body becomes a little bit more transformed, a little bit more pure, a little bit more affected. By the light of the soul. But this is this beautiful, beautiful symphony of movement that exists when we do what we're meant to be doing as per what God is telling us to do. When we're studying Torah or doing a mitzvah, what's happening is our soul and its light is now influencing the body through the medium of the mitzvah. And as long as we're fueling it with more mitzvot, the body keeps on being affected. And to different extents. Again, a tzaddik is going to have a big-time effect on the body and the animal soul. And a bainini? Also a big-time effect, but in a bit of a different way.
1: I have a question. Yes. Several chapters ago, you taught us in Tanya uh, about the two different methods, or two different philosophies of, I guess, Unification with uh, the A- Ain so. One was to become basically nothing. Totally, totally consumed. Assumed. The other was, was not. How does that relate to this?
0: So I don't remember exactly which which piece you're referring to. Um, was it in one of the meditations about love and fear, or was it?
1: Uh, I was trying to find it. Yeah, I was talking about the two different the two different roads. It wasn't that long ago, maybe a few chapters. Uh, So
0: I I don't, I don't specific, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not picturing exactly what you're referring to. Please, I think it was here. Yeah, it probably was. I just, you know, I'm, I'm not recalling it in the moment, but I will say that this is something that's pretty, that's pretty solid as far as Tanya's philosophy, right? Like what's the whole, is there a monkey on my shoulder? Hey, Reva. How's it going? I see Mr. Monkey. Monkey wants to learn Tanya? There we go. Okay. Um, And Reva, maybe you also want to learn some Tanya. We're we're down to the last few minutes, last few lines. So um, what he's saying here is like it's pretty consistent with, as I said before, with the beginning of Tanya as well. Like the whole idea here is that a Benini really transforms the world. Like, you don't have to be a tzaddik to really transform the world. You can be a benini and make a real difference. A benini absolutely transforms the world. And now we have this beautiful kind of physical and metaphysical construct to kind of, you know, put all the pieces together. You have the soul, which is the flame. You have a body, which is the wick. And you have a mitzvah, and to- Torah and mitzvah, which are the oil. And when you put them all together, you get some magic. You get a person... In totality, bringing light and warmth into the world, transforming the world through that light. And how is the light born? By the person studying Torah and doing a mitzvah, and thereby their their, their own being becomes transformed and the world becomes transformed.
1: Ari, right, I found it. What it's you got? Silver love, it was the silver love and the gold love. Yeah. It was in chapter 50.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I thought it might be one of the meditations on love. Look, I mean, that was... You know, different forms of <laughs> that was different forms of of um, of connection. I believe that it was talking about like the, the Kohain and the Le- You know, the Cohen and the Levite, different different metaphors for uh, for that type of attachment, that type of love. Um, we're talking now about not as much the love as we're talking about the practical dissolving into what it is that God wants from us to do. It's that practical, um, I'm channeling God's will and wisdom through me, right? It's like kind of the, the wick channeling the oil, like the oil is coming through the wick, the mitzvah is coming through us and affecting us, and the soul therefore can do its magic in that, in that process. And that's really full circle about the power of the benini. Um Oh, oh I'm, I'm right up to here. Four.
1: Monkey.
0: It is monkey. For as a result of the transformation of the animal soul, which would be the wick in this example, originating from Kalipa Noga, which is this kind of not holy but neutral shell, from the darkness of klipot to the light of holiness and so forth, Right when the wick is transformed into an instrument for light, when the body and animal soul are transformed into instruments of divine light in this world, There is brought about the so-called ascent of the feminine waters. That's a Kabbalistic euphemism for our avoda, our divine service, which comes from below to above, which rises from below. Masculine and feminine are sometimes used as metaphors for giver-receiver. Masculine is the giver. Feminine is the receiver. So masculine would be um, the above and feminine would be the below. In other words, God and us. And the idea here is the ascent of feminine waters means that we are through our avodah, through our actions, we are lifting ourselves and our body and our animal soul closer, 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 upward toward God. And what's the point? To draw down the light of the Shekinah. So we we'll go up to bring down the divine light. I.E. You do sound tired. You can go to sleep. You want to? Stay for the end of Tanya. You'll like it. I.E. Revealed light of the Ein Sof. Right? The the ascent goes up to bring down the light of the Shekhinah, the revealed light of the Ein Sov, over one's divine soul, principally dwelling in the brain of the head. In other words, when we do, when we study Torah, do a mitzvah, it's our body and animal soul channeling the oil and rising up to God, bringing the light, the infinite light back down. So what's the experience like? The experience is... Like going to the temple of old, it is interfacing with the essence monkey. Monkey. and the monkey. Thereby, <laughs> thereby, one may, clearly, sorry, one may clearly understand the text, the verse that says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? God is a consuming fire? As explained elsewhere that it's only when a Jew succeeds in nullifying him or herself to God in a manner where he ceases to exist as an independent entity and is consumed in the flames of godliness, when a person basically is, allows the, the, the Torah and Metzot to flow through them and doesn't get in the way, doesn't obstruct that flow, only then will he drop on himself the light of the Shekinah, the infinite light. And this, my friends, is the conclusion of the first part of Tanya with the help of God, May he be blessed and exalted. And this is the end of the 53rd chapter of Tanya in the first section of Tanya. So how does it end? It ends with the words as is explained elsewhere. But that is a reference to this beautiful verse for God is a consuming fire. Not in a scary way or in a negative way. Not in a... Good. Not in a way of like, oh, God's a consuming fire. Be careful. Don't get too close. No, no, no. That's not what it means. God is a consuming fire means simply that how do we reach God? How do we really reach God in the most profound way? It's by us replicating the model of the lamp. Just like a lamp needs oil and wick, oil, wick, and flame, so too we need mitzvah, Torah, mitzvot, Body and soul in order to bring light into the world. And that's exactly how we do it. And so, my friends, the message of Tanya, there's a lot of stuff in Tanya. But the message, you can kind of draw a line from the beginning, I think, from the beginning to the end. And that is, you and I, we're here not for ourselves, but we're here To really make a difference in the world. To bring more light into the world. To transform the world. And transform ourselves along the way. And how do we do that? Huh? Yep. And how do we do that? We do that. We do that by studying Torah and doing mitzvot. Back to basics. And we also do that by making sure that our thoughts don't get carried away. And that our words are where they need to be. The final analysis, it's about being a bainani. Being a Tzaddik, uh, you got to be born with that or blessed with that. That's already extra, extra special. A Tzaddik is already somebody who, you know, is perfect inside and out. That's a very rare breed. Maybe a few, a handful in every generation. But a bainani, everyone can be a bainani. It doesn't take any special... Pedigree doesn't take any special innate quality. It just takes the, the knowledge and the desire to be one. So I'll conclude with two stories. Number one, it, story that I heard from Rabbi Denberg from Florida. His uncle was Rabbi Nissen Neminov, who was the Mashpia, the spiritual um, counselor, um, the spiritual mentor in the yeshiva in France in Paris, France. Or I think Brnois, right outside of Paris. And um, he is he was Rabbi Denberg's uncle, great uncle, I don't know, some relative or maybe friend of the family. I don't know, somehow connected. Rabbi Denberg comes from Montreal. So he Rabbi Nemanov, used to visit, used to visit Montreal and stay by his house. And when he was a kid, so he would stay sometimes in in his the rabbi would stay in this kid's bedroom. And what, I, I don't know the exact arrangement, but he was basically stayed in his room, and then they shuffled around. One time, this, uh, the, the Rabbi Denberg, who told me, I heard this story from him, so he was, he was still a kid, but he knew enough to know about Tanya and Benini. And he also knew that the rumor was about Rabbi Neminov that he was, the ben- he was on the level of the Benini of, of, of Tanya. He was like on that level of like being perfect in thought, speech, and action, which is extremely, not perfect inside, but, but perfect on the outside, which is itself an extremely lofty level. Um, so he asked his uncle, so I hear they say about you that you're a Benini, but how, how does one become a Benini? So the rabbi tells the, young to young, the, the relatively young boy, he says, in the next 30 seconds, can you make sure not to think anything you shouldn't be thinking, say anything you shouldn't be th- saying and do, not doing anything you shouldn't be doing for 30 seconds? Can you do that? Yes. 60 seconds? Yes. It's okay. Now keep on repeating that. Do it for a minute and then the next minute, and then the next minute. And you see where I'm going with this, right? So that's one story. So what is a bainini? A bainini is somebody who is in control. And you say, well, how could I be in control? It's so hard. Can you be in control for, for one minute? Good. So you can be in control. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it. It's the ultimate struggle, especially for the bainini who's not a Tzaddik, who has all those other forces inside that are countering the, good, the, 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 the holy and the good. Nonetheless, but that's the consistent message of Tanya, that it's not about how we feel inside. It's about what we do on the outside. And so the, fi- the final story I wanted to share with you, the final message of the, Altareb, the, the author of Tanya before he passed away in 1812. He remarked to his family, I think he asked his son, when looking at the table in the room that he was in, He said, what do you see? And his son said, I see a table. And he said, I don't see a table. I see the divine light, the divine life force that is infusing this table with its vitality. And he was lifted up to this lofty level. But what was the last, shortly before his death, but what was the last thing that he penned? The last discourse that he taught before his passing? in that heightened state of spiritual awareness, what did he teach? He composed a discourse or a letter, a short teaching that extols the virtue of practically doing a mitzvah. Because notwithstanding all the lofty visions and all the lofty revelations and seeing God on an unprecedented level shortly before he passed away, what became clear to him in that moment is that what is it all about? It's all about what we do on a practical level. And so, my friends, as we conclude this round of Tanya, there will be more, please, God. As we conclude this round of Tanya, let us take to heart this message, especially right as we're at the the footsteps of the holiday of Shavuot. When we got the Torah and we got the Ten Commandments, which form the core of the mitzvot, let us remember this, that our job is to transform this world It's a tall order, but we can do it. Each one of us can bring light into the world. How do we do it? With our souls and our bodies and Torah and mitzvot. That's how we make a difference. Adina Malka, yeah. Well,
2: you know, I have a question about speech. And, well, you know, you were saying that, um, that when you pray or, well, that the commandments were about about yes,
0: teaching. verbalizing.
2: So, does that mean like you can't read the psalms? You have to sort of reading them out loud.
0: <clears throat> ideally, ideally verbalize. Ideally, verbalize. Yeah.
2: And when you, it just seems like um, well, like I I listen to a lot of the meditations from uh, Rabbi. Um, label wolf. Yes, he's that's, great. That's silent. That's just listening and
0: going within. We also need that. It, we also, it's not a country. It, we also need that. We also need the focused thought and the silence and the meditation, hundred percent. But we also need the action to make vibrations in the world, right? To 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 stir the environment around us with this holiness. Again, it's not to discount. The, the other stuff, the more meditative part of it, but it's to kind of, um, to, to enhance or to, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. But to, to lift up the, 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 the actions that we do and the words that we say as well. So ideally, verbalize as much as you can.
2: But like we're listening to like some of the recordings, like from your class, and then they'll listen again. So you're just listening to a class, and that doesn't count?
0: It does count. For sure it counts. But ideally, if you could say some words of Torah, and I don't know exactly, I don't know if I have some practical advice for that, like what actually to say, but again, ideally, we verbalize Torah study. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. It seems
2: like some of the good deeds are from not speaking.
0: Correct. Right. You're right. You're right. There's a lot of do nots, right? And the do nots are a valid part of Torah. So what kind of action is it? You're right. It's the absence of negative action. So it's kind of like, you know, putting, putting good energy into the world and making sure that we're not putting negative energy or dark energy into the world. It's kind of putting the light in the world and the, the other mitzvot, like the do, and there's more do nots than do's. There's 248 do's and 365 don't do's. So the majority of mitzvot, the majority of the 613 are things that we're not supposed to do. So yeah, you're right. It wouldn't be, it's, it's, not, it's not the doing in that case. It's the, just making sure that we're not pumping in negative,
2: Speech,
0: yeah. our, uh, negative energy into the world. But consistently the idea here is that you and I have the power to change the world even if we're not, even though we're not perfect. It's, it's us imperfect human beings that can change the world and will change the world for the better. That will bring Mashiach. It's us. It's not, it's not the perfect ones. It's, it's too, that's, that's not what God wanted. God wanted the imperfect ones to make a difference. Why are there any tzaddikim then? to show us where we're going, right? It's a role model to show us it's like me engulfing. I'm not going to get into the hole, but you're showing me which direction I'm headed, right? So it's like that's where we're headed. Are we going to get there? In action maybe, not in all the way, but that's where we're going. But that's why there's so many more non-saddikim than sadiqam, because this 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 vision is not built by perfection. It's built by imperfection, striving to do what it needs to do. That creates that tension of the imperfect acting perfect, that inner tension and that push despite. It's like the burning of the wick. It's like, yeah, you kind of just have to like think about it and meditate on it. It's like the burning of the wick. There's like a tension there. There's like a, it's burning. It's being consumed and there's oil coming through it. And it produces, it's, like a, it's kind of a messy thing, produces beautiful light. Produces beautiful light. So my friends, I thank you for being on this journey with me. Stay tuned because we are going to continue Thursday night study. So whether we're going to go back to the beginning of Tanya or maybe we'll move to a different section of Tanya. There's multiple parts of Tanya um, or maybe we'll move to another text, possibly. Maybe this one that I'm holding in my hand. Shahar Gate of Trust. So stay tuned for more information. Email forthcoming um, sometime next week, please God. We got the holidays: um, Sunday night, Monday, and Tuesday. So stay tuned for that. Oh, I should mention: speaking of the holidays, speaking of Shavuot, that we are going to be doing a nighttime Torah study Sunday night, starting at 10:30 p.m. So 10:30 at night on Sunday. We'll be doing some late-night Torah study um, with cheesecake and coffee and tea and whatnot, whatever you like, tea for me at least. And I um, and, and also wants who likes that. And uh, you can stay as long as you want and enjoy the company and the study and the cheesecake and all that. Um, otherwise, I want to wish everybody Shabbat Shalom and a Chag Shavuot Sameach, although I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that, but Chag Sameach for Shavuot. And as the, as the traditional Hasidic greeting goes, you and I should have, may you have a Kabbalah Torah b'simcha u b'pnimiyut. May you receive Torah once again this year with joy and with sincerity. For the 33rd, 133rd anniversary of the giving of the Torah, may it be a year of threes. Three is a good number. And so may it be a year of where uh, Torah really is integrated with us and we're integrated with it and through it, we bring the light into the world and make this world a home for God and end all of the pain and all the suffering and bring Mashiach with goodness and blessing for all. Thank you and God bless.
1: Thank you. <laughs>
0: Pleasure. Thank Pleasure. you.
1: Shabbat shalom.
0: Shabbat, Shabbat shalom, everybody. Mark and David and Stan and Adina Malka and Fran and Drew, great to see you guys and Steve and Sandrine. We have to and-
2: everybody who was on that class for twelve years.
0: Say it again. What? what say it again.
2: Yeah, to anybody who was on that class for twelve years.
0: I know, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. We have uh, we have a few. Adina Malka, wait, Adina Malka, were you behind the... I got something in the mail for uh, Israel. Adina Malka, did you coordinate that? Yes. Thank you very much. That was really beautiful. Thank you. Trees planted. Four trees, right? Four trees in Israel. Planted in honor. I have it in my office. I have in honor of uh, of this class, right? In honor of the time. Am I getting it right? Yeah, from the, uh, your Tanya class. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coordinating. Thank you all for those that participated, for participating. It's very meaningful, especially especially uh, you know, given everything that's going on. We need to, to really be strong and supportive. Um, Joy and Lisa, it's great to see you all. Have a wonderful evening. Lila Tov. Shabbat Shalom. Chag Sameach and other Hebrew words of blessing. Yes, Mark.
1: I said this in the chat, in case you didn't see. Uh, see. It's been an incredible journey.
0: I, 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 I concur, and I will say that some of the warmest memories that I have are both now and back in the day, but also in hearing the participants in this class, you know, repeat words of Tanya. And I'll say that I've heard, you know, Mark and Adina Malka, I've heard you guys talk about Tanya, and I know sometimes back in the day at the Kiddush, a Chabad in town, the old building, you know, learned in Tanya. It's just it's really beautiful to, uh, to be on this journey together, and all of you for being on this journey together um, in Tanya, whether long or medium, or, or the last year, which is also a, a, a big commitment and also a long time. It's been fantastic. So thank you for the thank you, and I I couldn't say any better myself. It's been an incredible journey. All right. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Bye. Have a good night. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure.